1: This is the London Review of Books podcast. Today we have the first of three guest episodes from Myself with Others, a new podcast presented by our US editor, Adam Schatz. In this episode, he's talking to the writer and critic, Margot Jefferson.
2: A friend from Brandeis and I were working as secretaries at Planned Parenthood, and we just sat down and said, What what are we doing with our lives? talking to him about and listening to Bud Powell, taking in that violent, self-destructive life. And he loved Bud Powell and the beauty, the uncanny but disruptive beauty of, of that music. An earlier group of Blacks, including Black women, had forged that path. So, you know, they could tell me things, they could be helpful. So I knew perfectly well that part of what was going on with my being hired was what they called the twofer, You never quite knew when it was suddenly going to kick in.
1: You're listening to Myself with Others, a podcast about the life of ideas on and off the page. And I'm your host, Adam Schatz. My guest on this episode is the writer and cultural critic, Margot Jefferson. Many of those listening to this podcast will know her from her memoir of growing up in a family of black professionals in Chicago, Land, which won the National Book Critics Circle Award for autobiography in 2016. Margot is also the recipient of a Pulitzer for her writings in the New York Times, where she was critic at large for many years and a longtime professor of writing at Columbia University. What distinguishes Margot's writing on culture is her extraordinary curiosity, her breadth of vision, and her flair for making unexpected connections. Her treatment of race and gender in particular is notable for the artful way in which it dodges the traps set for anyone writing on these topics, whether it's sanctimony, glibness, or sheer laziness. To read her is to experience the pleasure of watching a thinker always in movement, never satisfied with easy answers. Margot's sister Denise was a dancer, and Margot is a dancer on the page. I've been a fan of her work since I began reading her in the Times and became friendly with her in the late 1990s, so I'm delighted to have her as a guest. Thank you, Margot, for joining me.
2: Thank you. Thank you for inviting me.
1: Margot, you were born in 1947 in Chicago, one of the great American cities. Chicago is also a very important city in Black American history, primary destination point for Black people fleeing the South during the Great Migration. The city where Horace Caton taught sociology and wrote his book, Black Metropolis, where Richard Wright became a writer, where Elijah Muhammad led the Nation of Islam, where Jesse Jackson founded Operation Push, where Harold Washington became mayor and where Barack and Michelle Obama first made their careers. Chicago is also the home of the great Black Musicians Collective, the AACM, one of whose members, the composer George Lewis, appeared on an earlier podcast.
2: (laughs) We went to the same grammar in high school.
1: (laughs) Oh, the lab school. Yes. In fact, I I think he got there just after you left.
2: I think that's right, yeah.
1: So how conscious were you growing up of the city's prominence in Black life?
2: (sighs) On my father's side, of course, I was totally aware of the importance of Provident Hospital, you know, the all... Black, oldest, all-Black hospital. Um, and speaking of migration, um, a number of doctors came from elsewhere. My father from Los Angeles for the chance you know, to be at an all-Black hospital. So there was that. My mother had grown up in Chicago and, and they she and her mother had come from St. Louis around, let's see, early, in the early 20s. Uh, my grandmother was still there. So I had a very clear sense between them and their friends of this world, I would call it. I didn't yet call it a culture, I, you know, I was a child, but of this several generations world. People's voices, you know, just the way, you know, parties, gatherings, clubs. My parents would comment on these things. Well, you know, and sometimes in that, just that frivolous way where, you know, Negroes say and do, da 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 dum, but they were also aware, especially my mother, because my father was at the hospital or the office most of the time, they were very aware that with our, my sister and I going from really elementary school on, kindergarten, to a m- almost entirely white school, that certain cultural facts, certain pieces of Black, then Negro history would have to be Formally imparted to us and made a part of this out-of-school world, so I was conscious of it. There was also a lot of joking that goes on about black people, our achievements, our style in different cities. Oh, you know, Washington Negroes are this, are so, oh, snobbish in that way. Chicago does such and such and such. So. You know,
1: it seems as though there was a lot of very conscious instruction, a lot of pedagogy, a lot of comparing to others going on in your house. And that's very much a part of Negroland. Yes.
2: Yeah, absolutely. You know, another thing, because, of course, you know, you, um, you write about music so much and sometimes I do, too. They were still they still knew, you know, they could say, oh. Way Nance was in high school with me. Or, you know, don't you remember, my father would always imitate the announcer um, coming from the, um, you know, oh, Earl Hines <laughs> coming from the ballroom. But they knew these people. Cab Calloway's um, wife, Nuffy, was an old, old grammar school friend of mine. You know, Maria Cole would bring um, Nat's children to Chicago for vacation. So, You know, what what was part of your social life then became part of your cultural history.
1: You did tell me that you grew up listening to Monk. Am I wrong?
2: That was, he was one of the, you know, the new breed that my parents caught up with. They were really, really absorbed because of their age and their social life. Really, you know, 20s, 30s, early 40s. And my father's passion was... Duke Ellington. Um, my, yeah, of course, and you know also Basie, but it was Ellington. My mother's passion was all of those singers, Ella and Billy. Lena Horne. Not as a singer compared, say, to Ella or Sarah or et cetera. So she would make those distinctions between who was a great entertainer and who was a great singer. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, she seems to have been a person who was really well-practiced in making distinctions of all kinds, uh, a veritable virtuoso of distinctions. A make, virtuoso
2: of distinctions, yes, exactly. Uh, and some of them you had to you had to put aside and let go. Others, it turned out, confer- you were very much worth keeping, yeah. But that, you know, and then they their parties, you know, all that wonderful music. You'd, yeah, you'd hear it at the parties. It was great.
0: ¶¶
1: Your mother, in your memoir, comes across as a very witty person who also suffered no fools, but also you get the sense that she was very anxious and very intent on explaining the, the perils that awaited her daughters and vigilant on everything from diction and posture to hair and skin care.
2: Yes, and, and, and behaving, you know, also recognizing subtle racism, which often we didn't recognize. Yeah.
1: At some point, your mother says to you that she sometimes forgets that she's a Negro. And I wonder, did she experience her Blackness mostly as a burden? I mean, were those feelings at all counterbalanced by the pride that she took in Black culture and achievement?
2: Yes, you know, that was in a letter that she wrote to a friend when she had just married. And so the context was her saying, I'm so happy. You know, but there they were in Fort Huachuca, you know, with the, the army, the segregated army fort with all these um, conservative to racist whites around them. So, you know, what it meant was sometimes I can just let the struggles go. And I think, I certainly think for her, also for my father, there was definitely that that uh, constant moving um, and sometimes struggle between the part of you that had to handle Blackness as as a struggle, you know, as as a battle, um, as a series of achievements, but always as work, um, which in some ways was lined up against you and the parts of you, whether with black or white or any other form of culture, could just be, you know, your temperament yourself. And they were very, very aware of that. I think my mother, um, and she's much more in this book than father, there was a, a deep appreciative love, along with irony, for the layers, the complexities, the stylistic variations of Black culture, where there's certain things that as, you know, an haute bourgeoisie, they approved of far more than others. Yes, but it didn't always toe the line, you know? Um, they remembered, may I mean, happy memories of going to the Regal Theatre, Seeing entertainers with names like Garbage <laughs> they, or Lulu, Meet Me With Your Black Drawers On. She and her friends started singing at a club meeting one day. So
1: She had a real independent streak. She wasn't someone who was just keeping up appearances. I mean, no. she's as vivid a presence in your book, as Vivian Gornick's mother is in her book, Fierce Attachments. Yeah. <laughs> but your father is less present in the book.
2: Much, much less.
1: And I wondered were you as close to him as you were to your mother?
2: No, though he is more, much more, because I have more and more time to think and ponder in this, in the new book that I just finished. But no, first of all, in the typical bargains of Couples, uh, <laughs> in those bourgeois couples, he was at working. He was at the office. He was a pediatrician. You know, so the hours. He was at the office for a number of years. He made house calls after that. Then he was head of pediatrics for a long time at the hospital. So, you know, we <laughs> we saw far more of him on the weekends. He carried himself with quiet charm and with, as we used to say, great dignity. He was he, in some ways, he was more of a um, moral force than my mother. With her, you always knew what the negotiations were, though, of course, you know, he wanted she wanted you to be decent. He really was um, quite, quite ethical and moral, um, and we looked up to him in that way, but he was also a melancholic, um, and I now realize that the Depression was often there.
1: I imagine just dealing with the psychic toll of being, you know, a, a very accomplished middle-class black man or, or woman for that matter would have been enormous.
2: It, yeah. And the family, his family had suffered more directly from threats of violence, you know, they, Mississippi, um, and they actually had been run out for being arrogant, you know, and like the deacons for defense and justice who preceded the Black Panthers the night that the family left. Friends of his in Coffeyville, Mississippi, watch took watch watch the house, and then they went west first to Denver and then to California. So, which was no no part of gold necessarily either. So he confronted it. He and his brothers more.
1: And you did move into a neighborhood in Chicago that had suffered violence, but yes,
2: exactly. We did. That's right. Which I that I did not. I do not remember any of that. I found that out from them much later. By the time I remember that house, la, 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 la. You know, it was fine. We had white neighbors and then they were the one, the woman who wouldn't speak to my mother who sent the daughters over to sit in our swings and mother would keep trying to get rid of her. But I have no recollection of that.
1: Yeah. You know, the, the burdens of what Du Bois called double consciousness Yes. Are one of the great themes of your memoir and I may be even understating the matter I mean, we're dealing with triple or even quadruple consciousness, but I, I wonder <laughs>
0: That's right.
1: Do you think that the condition of double consciousness is even more difficult in that era for the black elite? Because America is such a brutally status conscious society where people who don't succeed are considered losers moral as well as economic failures
2: Yes, and the um, strictures between because and they were strictures they were binaries This is respectable culture. This is disreputable. This is high culture. This is, oh, we can call it popular, but it's low culture. Uh, Well, you know, so we're always navigating because so much of what is, you know, vibrant Black culture would have been designated low culture. So you're also always fighting to get, oh, excuse me, Duke Ellington and Count Basie. And then know there, that's high culture. (laughs) Yeah. The terms
1: are so coarse. But maybe not Charlie Parker. Oh, no,
2: well, but no, he was you no, know, He was. He was high culture. He was. It's just. So I it just
1: mean the the lifestyle, you know, because it,
2: it, oh, ooh, there is that. There's that. Oh yes. Well, there's a long, long, long um, piece in the book I just finished. It has a lot to do with my father, but it's about talking to him about and listening to Bud Powell and taking in that violent, self-destructive life. And he loved Bud Powell and the beauty, the uncanny but disruptive beauty of, of that music,
1: and I, yeah. You know, you write in Negro Land that we we thought of ourselves as the third race poised between the masses of Negroes and all classes of Caucasians, a race that possessed of wisdom, intuition, and enlightenment that the two other races lacked. I mean, there's a... Now,
2: you do understand I'm being ironic as well. as I, <laughs> I just want the listeners to recognize
1: Yes, that. yes, it's important, but... I wondered, even if you are being ironic and certainly kind of ventriloquizing your parents' sense of pride and the superiority that one can gain over the oppressor, I mean, is it possible that your parents did have a more clear-eyed view um, than their white counterparts precisely because of that double consciousness that they had a better understanding of American society than most whites did?
2: Oh, not a question. Absolutely not a question. You were reading texts and subtext. You know, you were always you know. It's there's the dinner party. There's the conversation. You know. There's all. There's all, Here's the legal structure. Here's how it's violated.
1: Well, it seems to me this is great training for a cultural critic. I
2: think that that's right, actually, and thank goodness for it, because what is less good training is the um, the gentility you know, the, the the good girlness. Cultural capital C. Yes, exactly. All the accoutrements. Um, and that... the, and, yes. And the courtesies, you know, oh, don't, don't be rude about that. You know, <laughs> try to be polite. And the good manners.
1: You didn't learn to be a cultural critic by being part of Jack and Jill, for example.
2: No, the only way you learn to be a culture critic is if you start thinking about why at a certain point you didn't want to be part of Jack and Jill anymore. And then what does that mean? Yeah. And in that way, the sixties, all of those wild political changes, then the seventies, they're good because for, they're great for cultural criticism. You know, not only is everything violently shifting, you're shifting, but you can't pretend unless you're a fool that you weren't this other person before. So, you know, you, you're seeing yourself at min, in many stages um, as if you were on a, on a, on a theater.
1: There's a really eloquent passage in the book about your discovery of James Baldwin. And what's striking about that passage is that you focus on his use of pronouns. There's a sentence where he uses the word we and he uses the word one. And you were wondering, who is this we? And you write that he's proclaiming his right of entry with every possessive pronoun, integrating America by means of grammar and syntax. sounds like this was uh, both a political and a linguistic revolution for you.
2: I think that's absolutely right. He was the only Black writer in high school that we read, for sure. Sure. But, you know, the diction, the syntax, the range, you know, we go from the Bible to the Black church to Henry James to, you know, it's so knockout. But I I, I suppose I obsessed with that because I was working out myself, um, you know, what the we was
1: also Baldwin's "We" in the nineteen fifties is all is Americans of all races, and exactly. but at a certain point that "We" becomes "We Black People."
2: Then exactly around mid-piece or, or yeah,
1: yeah, around like the late sixties after the fire next time.
2: Yeah, yeah, and even in that piece, the "We" becomes Black People periodically. So you know that was utterly fascinating because you know the 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 world I grew up in was so elaborately and perilously poised between the we of an integrated America and the we of a black separate America
1: And it's almost like another text subtext case where the same note played twice has a different meaning
2: exactly It also becomes very interesting you know as the culture changes because who you know I mean critics of earlier generations um, white men use that we, Absolutely.
1: Almost as their divine right.
2: Exactly. So every time I would use a we as a critic, I have to think about it. And there'd be pieces I'd write where I would really try to change the we as I moved through the piece. Don't know how it succeeded, but I was certainly very aware of that.
1: Pauline Kael, of course, often used the second person, you, which you deploy at times as well.
2: That's true. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then the I, hmm. When does it, when does it signify?
1: (laughs) I wanted to ask you about 1955 in Chicago, going back a little bit. This is the year, of course, that a young man from Chicago, Emmett Till, uh, Mm. was murdered in Mississippi, where he was visiting relatives. Do you remember that time?
2: I do. I do not remember it um, as clearly as my sister, who was three years older, because she always, not always, but she would periodically talk about sneaking into the den where that ebony was. You know, she wanted to look at it when my parents weren't there and looking the picture. The picture of the casket. Exactly. Of you. I don't think I saw that for years, but I can remember Every, everybody talked about it. And we were my parents talked about it. There was this grimness over, over the house. But over also, if you got a black newspaper, which we did, there it was. Every Sunday you would have dinner with friends or visits with, and that's what they talked about. And you know, just this, this. It was the grimness. Yeah. And um, it was an
1: extraordinary act on Mamie Till's part to insist that.
2: That the casket be open, yes. And, you know, I'm glad that John H. Johnson decided to do that. Um, He wasn't, they weren't always brave people, but this time, yeah. Uh, Oh, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, Emmett Till and also in terms of the violence is here. Emmett Till was in Chicago. But within a year or two, I don't think I saw it on TV in 55, we were seeing those violent demonstrations as young black kids were going to schools in the south. Now those are the years I went to a very progressive school, but those are the years that, you know, my little negro friends and I were going to the walking, walking into those schools every day. So But your
1: peers certainly had to confront different kinds of racism. I'm thinking of an incident that you described in an interview somewhere about your sister Denise who was told by her ballet instructor that she couldn't really expect to become a ballet dancer, I mean, she could go into modern dance, and,
2: or yes, she could go into maybe some of some of the white modern companies were accepting blacks, but also Catherine Dunham. Um, now, the teacher whom Denise and I were actually quite fond of—oh my God, this is interesting—she was the first white teacher in Chicago to accept a black student, and that student was Frances Taylor.
1: Davis. Later Miles' wife.
2: Exactly. She was then Frances Taylor.
1: Who danced with Catherine Dunham.
2: Exactly. And with the Paris Ballet. My mother found out about this teacher. I'm not sure how my mother knew Frances Taylor, but they were from, it was the same world. Uh, She found out about this teacher. What the teacher said, she thought she was being kind. Denise should not have been in the room when she said that. That would have been kinder. Was your daughter is very talented. I'm very happy to accept her. But this is the way the world operates. And there won't be,
1: you know. Um, I think you dedicated Negroland to the memory of your sister who died yeah. a few years before its publication. Yeah. Uh, she eventually worked with the Alvin Ailey Company, didn't she? She she
2: didn't, she was not a dancer with them. By that time she'd stopped dancing, but she danced um, with uh, Pearl Lang and a couple of other modern companies. Then she went into teaching and administration and she was the, um, ah, she was the director of the school for 20 years. So she fell in love with, well, not surprising, with modern dance through Martha Graham, who had two black dancers actually, and through Donnie McHale, you know, and, she realized then the, 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 these this is also these are ways to use the body and to access um, emotions and and um, vistas that, <laughs> that ballet doesn't offer so in that way thank god you know she had those those choices but yeah there were always the not always but very often you know you would think da, 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 and then
1: yeah whoosh. you suddenly realized here's the ceiling yes
2: exactly or here's the wall
1: yeah, yeah. right you went to Brandeis. I did. And my father, as it happens, went to Brandeis.
2: How funny. He's
1: five years older than you are. And Angela Davis, I think, had just graduated when you arrived there.
2: As had Abby Hoffman. And Abby
1: Hoffman. Yeah. And she'd studied, of course, with Herbert Marcuse, and Irving Howe was there at the time. So what was your experience like at Brandeis? Were you studying literature? or (sighs)
2: Like so many young women. If I had it to do over again, I'd have done what they called American civilization, which is culture and history, um, and then it would have all expanded around 67, eight. I was English and American lit. And at that time, I was doing more poetry and more English lit than American. But, you know, it felt in many ways in those years, very much like an extension of the lab school, you know, with this um, progressive Jewish intellectual tradition, these intense Boys and
1: girls. <laughs> so this was a heavy immersion in Marx and Freud, I'm guessing.
2: Uh, lots, lots of Marx and Freud. That's right. And
1: people who'd spent a fair amount of time on the couch, I imagine.
2: Uh, I remember being envious of one of my floor mates who had gone to Fieldston. She's still a good friend, and you know she'd been seeing a shrink since she was about 14. And I thought, oh man, that's being complex. <laughs> I felt um the only thing that I um. You know, race, was, race is always tricky in any white school, but the other thing I remember feeling acutely about was being a Midwesterner. The Easterners, and that was true of Interlochen also. Easterners were, you know, more suave and worldly.
1: Did you realize that you wanted to become a writer while you were at Brandeis?
2: You know, I, no. Um, I, have, I, have, I had always been told by teachers from grammar school on that I wrote really well. I hadn't done any journalism in college. In, in high school, I didn't do any in college. I didn't decide I wanted to be a writer until out of, about a year or two out of college when um, <laughs> the women's movement hit. And um, two other friends, one... A friend from Brandeis and I were working as secretaries at Planned Parenthood. And we just sat down and said, what What are we doing with our lives? And I had to really sit and think, what am I good at? You know, what have, is there something I'm taking for granted? I had dabbled with maybe acting, but I knew I wasn't going to do that.
1: I was intrigued to learn while rereading Negroland recently that you'd had this involvement in the theater at Brandeis.
2: A little bit, yeah.
1: You'd acted in the Genet play.
2: I acted in the maids. That's right. That's right. But then I then I withdrew. But the next time I didn't get a part. And then in 1968, you know, you you remember all the experimental theater going on. A company in Boston started based on Arto and Richard Schechner and whatever. It, and we did a piece called Riot, where we actually staged with strobe lights and.
1: And didn't you write something for the Cherry Lane Theater?
2: I did, years later. Yeah, yeah. And it was actually, here's what was useful. I had fun doing it. But what was especially useful for me was it allowed me to access material that I wanted to get at that would find its way into Negroland. And I couldn't do it any other way. It really started because my niece, who was a dancer, and I applied to do a theater piece at Anna Devere Smith's Institute. And that really just got me thinking about, what can you say out loud? Um, And somehow I needed that transition to be able to say more intimate things on the page.
1: Right, and of course you'd grown up in a home where you'd been taught there were certain things you just didn't say out loud to protect yourself. That was obviously a very important part of your childhood.
2: Exactly. Plus, you know, I think also often as a younger sister, you're busy, or a younger sibling, you're busy watching What troubles the older one is getting into and deciding what to avoid, how to be sneakier, you know, how to find your own way, even if it's a cowardly way. Just so there was, yeah, there was, there was that too.
1: Yeah, of course. But you know, the thing that really intrigued me about your involvement in the theater is that I suspect it has something to do with the generosity of your writing on the performing arts. Uh, I think that my writing on music, for example, changed when I got to know more musicians and realized how much more they know about their art and how brilliantly they speak about it. I feel like I'm just catching up most of the time. And I wonder if that connection to the theater as a participant influenced the way you write about it.
2: Well, it's interesting that you say that because at one point when I was actually, I guess, the Sunday theater critic... I thought, boy, I am getting so lofty. There's something about this tone I don't like. I need to reconnect. And I joined a kind of amateur group that a playwright friend of mine, Eduardo Machado, was um, organizing because I just thought, I've got to be back in contact with watching what they're doing and knowing how hard it is when I'm trying to do it too. And I think that did help. Just parenthetically, um, I'm jumping back to something you said a few minutes ago. I wasn't able to go forward at a certain point on Negro land till I wrote what became the opening passage. I was taught, you know, not to not to accept or tolerate memoir to turn away from it. And as soon as I put that down, you know, I was able to keep writing.
1: Right. You could write the memoir once you'd liberated yourself from the expectations of a conventional memoir. You know, by the time you graduated, Black Power was emerging. In,
2: from Brandeis, you mean absolutely.
1: From Brandeis, I mean. Yeah. You remarked that while Black Power rejected much of what you'd grown up with—the whole kind of respectability politics of your parents—it yeah. had some unforeseen advantages, such as—and I'm quoting—giving you an excuse to stop talking to various people you felt insulted or slighted by. Who said the personal always had to be honorably political? <laughs> it's <laughs> I a great God, line. I said,
2: I, I hope I was deeper than that at times, but you're right, yes. Oh, there's nothing too trivial for a major movement, is there, is there, in terms of the personal acting out, yeah.
1: How deeply involved were you in the ferment of Black power at the time? How did your parents react to this new enthusiasm?
2: Uh, well, deeply, deeply involved, you know, I was an amateur who went to demonstrations, you know, and had all the posters up in my room and was reading all the right books, you know, and taking it in that way seriously. Um, my sister and I argued with our parents constantly, you know, everything from Afros to, you know, oh, to, the, to the Panthers, to even something like, because this had to do with the left too, versus the black and white left versus good liberalism. My father and I once had a, a fierce argument because he felt that Thurgood Marshall that Lyndon Johnson's appointing Thurgood Marshall to the Supreme Court helped excuse his mistakes in Vietnam and I even though they were wrong and I said no it doesn't excuse that at all <laughs> no. right so there we were yeah and that's a kind of good example of those different worldviews
1: yeah I mean he was an accommodationist in the sense that he thought that well okay, Vietnam is awful, but at least we have the war on poverty. At least we have Thurgood Marshall on the Supreme I mean, Court. And that's the exactly. kind of compromise that the younger generation simply was not willing to accept.
2: Exactly. Exactly. We were not having it. We were not having it. That's absolutely
1: right. Your mother said that if a fly got caught in your afro, he would break his little wings trying to get out.
2: Yes, and she had a friend over for lunch that day, and they just, merry peals of laughter. So I just had to stomp out of the room. You know, the punishment to them was, I had the afro. and i was you know you're wearing your kind of semi-african clothing and yeah i wore some of it i didn't have a dashiki but i had some dresses made of african prints and you know even though one of them I'd bought at Saks Fifth Avenue, but you know. I'm glad
1: I'm, you remain style conscious <laughs> throughout.
2: Yeah, we take what we, uh, but also little shops, uh, you know,
1: uptown. Were you reading Sonia Sanchez and Nikki Giovanni and the Black Arts Poets? And you bet. Amiri you bet. Baraka, you bet. You bet. I assume. Uh, Had
2: started with, you know, Baraka as the playwright when he was Leroy Jones. Absolutely. Sonia.
1: Dutchman. Dutchman and the Slave.
2: Yes. Yes, yes. Uh,
1: Which connected to your interest in radical theater and Grotowski and people like that. For sure. He was was very connected to that through the Grove press world.
2: Absolutely, absolutely.
1: People have this perception, I think, that it's something that stood apart from all the avant-garde ferment, but it was all mixed up.
2: That's right. They were readings together once upon a time. It's very funny to read um, the Frank O'Hara poems where Roy... Just shows up, you know, as his his pal.
1: I think he was in love with Baraka.
2: Oh, I forget who I heard it from, but apparently Baraka was just amazingly seductive for everyone across all borders and boundaries, right? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, one was reading all of that. Jane Cortez. um, Ornette
1: Coleman's wife at the time.
2: Yeah, I just found that out from your piece. I had completely forgotten that. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, you know, all the other, the, the serious stuff. Um, you know, the reading Soul on Ice is now so tainted for me by, at the time I was so excited, by the attack on Bolin that I found I wasn't going to list it You know, when you first asked me what I was reading.
1: Right. At this terribly homophobic attack, not to mention the celebration of rape and practicing on Black women. Exactly. I wondered about that, and I wondered, did you move towards feminism in part out of disillusionment with the culture of hyper masculinity and patriarchy and the Black Power movement
2: Absolutely but just as much absolutely but you know I don't want to sound sanctimonious just as much because of you know a life a lifetime of haute bourgeois female conditioning you know where the we includes white, black you know and all all girl, girls of all races um, shaped. By those ideologies, so it was—it was all of that, really. You know, with the final blow being the sexism, um, the misogyny. You know, her position in the movement is prone
1: of um, Stokely Carmichael, black.
2: Yeah, exactly. Um,
1: of black power,
2: and also you found out—I found, remember finding out from white friends how sexist. You know, the white left was too, so.
1: Well, that's how the second wave of feminism emerged in reaction to the sexism of the new left.
2: Exactly, so, you know, and so we black women were reacting to um, the black left and black power in the same way.
1: But at the same time, once you got involved in the women's movement, you quickly became a pretty prominent writer within that movement, and you became aware that, hmm, there are some problems with white women too.
2: Oh, absolutely. Um, You know, the first, I mean, from the moment, when did I start reading notes from the first and second year? You know, that early white feminist radicalism. That would have been 69, 70. I was already looking. And and I discovered Francis Beale in 70 or 71. Yeah, we were looking for other black women who cared and for black women who were gonna lead it. Tony K. Bambara's anthology, The Black Woman, came out in 1970.
1: A few years later, I think it was about three or four years later. The Combahee River Collective Statement was published introducing the whole concept of intersectionality. That's right. Which was considered kind of, I mean, I don't think they used the word intersectionality, but it certainly mapped out. But that's
2: what it was, you bet. That's what it was. Absolutely.
1: And you articulated what I think is implicitly a theory of intersectionality. In that documentary film, some American Feminists.
2: Some American Feminists. Wait, it's it's Flo Kennedy, it's T Grace Atkinson. Um both Flo Kennedy I looked up to. T Grace, I also looked up to, but she was actually a real friend. Flo is another generation. Um and who else was in that? I forget.
1: Bella Abzug, isn't it? Bella
2: Abzug, that's right. Lila Carp. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was trying to articulate. Um, this but no I, I wasn't I wasn't a, a theorist who could produce intersectionality in those in those way but that's what we were we black feminists were looking for. that's what Michelle Wallace was looking for in her book yeah absolutely. right
1: and in her book black macho and the myth of the absolutely. superwoman uh, did you meet Vivian yeah. uh, at that time
2: I met Vivian I was trying to remember when Vivian and I met um, I think if not the 70s by the early 80s. I certainly was reading her in the voice early on. No later than the 80s. You know, they, but there were whole groups of it. Also, if you were a young feminist writer, you were going to run into.
1: You're going to run into Vivian Gornick eventually, of course. Yeah,
2: yeah, exactly. Exactly.
1: You write in Negroland that when Negroes are your familiars, their faces, voices, bodies are the landscape of your everyday life. The shock comes when a person appears from that other, wider world, when an action, a fact, an event suddenly marks you as the oddity, the marred feature of a landscape. You, your people. The singular is turned undesirably plural. You're ambushed, literally and violently taken aback that's unhappiness, that's outrage, that's grief. It's a very visceral account, and I wondered whether we could connect this to what it was like for you moving into this white publishing world, a world in which you flourished, first at Newsweek where you became an associate editor in 1973 and later at Vogue at Seven Days and then at the New York Times where you became a critic at large. Did you often have this experience of feeling like a quote-unquote marred feature of a white landscape?
2: Uh, The marred feature... Um, in my emotional memory, is more attached, marred that particular word to early experiences where you were literally, and again, I'm thinking of of childhood through high school, um, and left. You were you literally became you could see yourself becoming this anthropological oddity or scar. This
1: unpleasant anomaly, right?
2: Yes, exactly. Something at best to be scrutinized and study, at worst, exactly, to be avoided. By the time I entered white publishing, there were political uh, and, and sociological black precedents for that. I came right after. Um, I went to Newsweek not long after Charlene hunter Galt and, you know, <laughs> other black writers.
1: Who'd gone from desegregating schools to desegregating journalistic to institutions. Desegregating
2: desegregating, exactly. So they were doing that. You know, they were the first wave of that. I got to Newsweek after women, now they were all white, had threatened to suit. You know, so I knew perfectly well. See, it was more a kind of, um, you were utilitarian, but lesser. So I knew perfectly well that part of what was going on with my being hired was what they called the twofer, you know, because there were fewer, obviously.
1: I mean, because you're a woman and you're black.
2: And a black, yes.
1: And so you become kind of an advertisement for the progress that this institution is making, but you're not taken seriously.
2: Exactly, and also often a way some of them could let you know by their tone of voice.
1: You should be grateful you're here.
2: Yeah, exactly, you're kind of on sufferance here. Or just a vulgarity. I remember a professor at Columbia, I was there from 70 to 71, saying you know in a whole you know kind of assembly of, of all the students who there he said you know and if you're black and a woman you've really got a leg up so it was it was that um a kind of be grateful prove yourself that's that's what it was and it was you never quite knew when it was suddenly going to kick in You know so you'd get kind of okay i'm doing this i'm doing that then Yeah. Yeah. Three or four or five years before, an earlier group of blacks um, and and of black women, including black women, had forged that path. So, you know, they they could tell me things. They could be helpful.
1: Right. The second piece of music that you suggested we play is called Reactionary Tango. It's by the pianist and composer Carla Blay. Let's listen to an excerpt from that. about Carla Blais' record, Escalator Over the Hill, her jazz and rock opera, which f- featured people like Gene Lee,
2: yes, Don
1: Cherry, Charlie Hayden, Linda Ronstadt. LeRoy
2: Jenkins was on it. LeRoy yeah, Jenkins, a yes. Books. Yeah.
1: What was it that attracted you to Carla Blaise's work?
2: Well, you know, I was sampling. And when I read you, I, I, I always place, now wait a minute, did I... Didn't I see? Didn't I see Abdul <laughs> There's a little club on the Lower East Side? So I was tracking around, and you know, here was this woman who was a composer, not not you know, and a pianist, not a
1: former cigarette girl
2: at at Birdland. That's exactly right. And I I don't remember when I first heard her. I remember early on having liberation music. But I was very, very intrigued. Um, This was a little before uh, people started really, I mean, there there was Mary Lou Williams. People had not quite rediscovered Melba Liston. And, you know, she was a bad bohemian white girl, you know, who somehow or another could make her way as, you know, a knockout (laughs) both physically and compositionally, etc. And I, that was fascinating to me. And I really did like the music.
1: One of your first big pieces published in 1973 was called Ripping Off Black Music. It appeared in Harper's.
2: It was the first piece I actually, piece of, of what one might call journalistic, you know, essay writing that I ever did.
1: It's incredibly brash, and
2: <laughs> it is brash. I need to get brash again. Yeah. And
1: those first few sentences, I'm not sure maybe you could get away with them today. I'm not so sure.
2: No, I think in the in, in the new introduction, I kind of have to address that because a couple of writers I knew did um say, Hmm, not sure you could do this. Ah,
1: yeah. The first sentence is Elvis Presley was the greatest minstrel America ever spawned, and he appeared in bold whiteface. Right.
2: And then we're not going to, we can't use that word anymore. That's right.
1: What I found really interesting about this piece, Margot, is that it's very much about the history, the soiled history of American entertainment. Soiled is great. Race. Yeah. Race mixing, minstrelsy, racial impersonation. That actually becomes, I think, a theme in a lot of your writing. On the one hand, you're trying to underline the centrality of race and racism in American culture, On the other hand, you're showing the elasticity of a culture that had been defined in such rigid terms.
2: Some of that I must immediately credit reading Ralph Ellison for, as well as Baldwin, but especially those, yeah.
1: To me, it seems very consistent with what Ralph Ellison, Albert Murray, and later Stanley Crouch in his less cranky reactionary phase were saying.
2: It's it's true, you know, and I later, of course, had to then turn to Blues people, you know. Um, no, it's it's that I'm celebrating, but I never let go of what Allison was best at. I think also this double consciousness, or you know, let's call it triple and quadruple, to think feel well good about ourselves. Um, I think that was very much a feature because I had really grown up not only with you know here's classical music, here's jazz, here's soul music and rock and roll, here's gospel, but um, I had also grown up within rock, white rock, black soul, also that, you know, I, I had the list of proper songs, the white rock and roll that I took would take to interlock in each summer or talk about with my white friends. Then I had the songs I would dance to at parties with my black friends. So, you know, I, I was always coding. and I, I mean,
1: I know you say at some point, I think it's in an interview, that you're just tired of the term code switching. And to me, what it suggests is, okay, you lived in different worlds. They overlapped in some ways. In some ways, they were separate. But why say, I don't live in all these worlds? Why disown a culture that your own people have helped to create?
2: Exactly. Exactly. And also, you know, there, there are things, you know this as a, as a critic, that you come up with, you come up against, and, and it turns out you really like that. And it doesn't Fit your politics. I, for years, was ashamed of kind of being won over by a number of the Beach Boys songs, <laughs> and then I just decided, "Let it go, Mark," <laughs> and see what see what patterns you know, what configurations you can you can make of this. And by the same token, well, I also I, I also used to be amused by the fact that really, this may have changed, but in my generation. The, the worshipers of James Brown, as opposed to, yes, I admire him. He's fun to dance to, were always Black men. It was always men. Yeah, that was, um, then I think we began to claim ours more with Aretha. But, you know, there were always these little, these big divisions or small discriminations within what might appear to be um, a very unified world or two such firmly segregated worlds that, yeah, yeah.
1: There are some remarkable lines in this essay about what today would be called appropriation. And what's interesting about them to me is that you're not rejecting appropriation in some kind of dogmatic or ideological fashion. You're saying the ultimate test is what do you do with the materials that you're drawing upon? Are you using them in an original fashion? I'm going to read this passage because I think it's very interesting borrowing itself is not the question since music lives by eclecticism still if you borrow you must return and nobody wants an imitation back if they've lent out the original has a young admirer ever attached himself to you he dogged your footsteps dressed as nearly like you as was possible acquired your mannerisms and expressions and told everyone how wonderful you were at first you may have been amused even flattered but you became uneasy Annoyed that you were being caricatured, your individuality undermined and cheapened. You felt used, fed off of, and your admirer took on the lewdness of a voyeur. You were being appropriated for his needs, used as raw material, in his effort to divert or remodel himself. Finally, you despise him. Imitation is a form of cannibalism, and the imitator is never content merely to nibble. Oh no! Every so often, when life becomes dull or frustrating, he becomes greedy. Nothing will satisfy him but the whole. Body and blood.
0: Ooh.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: You were kind of on fire in those days.
2: I was, and that's, I like that. You know what I left out? It's interesting. I left out the, the economic fact. It's, it's a given. I knew it. They're all, the imitator is profiting in some very concrete material way.
1: Ripping off and getting rich.
2: Exactly. Exactly. But
1: then you say a very mordant line that Janis Joplin thought she was black and somebody took her at her word because she died so young.
2: Oh, Janis Joplin. Right. Yes, I did. That's right. That's right. You know, she was an interesting figure, too, because a part of me kind of wanted to hate her, you know, because there she was. She took it. You know, she had... Otis Redding over here, she had Tina over there. Oh, here's the here's the gravestone for Bessie Smith. And boom, suddenly she was the most talented, popular woman singer that the culture had produced. So Queen Queen Funk. But then I realized there were really, there was something there in that, in that voice, in that self- so, and I thought to myself There's a
1: reality there actually.
2: Absolutely. And as it, you know, I once had to ask myself, well, now which version of Peace of My Heart? moves you more. Janice's, or is it Irma Franklin, I think? Janice's.
1: Yeah, I mean, you've warned against the authenticity trap and the idea that there are certain versions of cultural blackness that should demand adherence. I'm thinking of a wonderful essay that you wrote about the Harlem Renaissance novelist uh, Nella Larson, mm. who had been disparaged for not writing novels that made reference to black ritual or folklore and for not drawing upon the vernacular. She'd also been criticized for dwelling on the so-called tragic mulatto figure. You mount a very passionate defense of Mm -hmm. Larson's fiction, and you point out that some of the things that have been dismissed uh, as dated, for example, her interest in dual identity her interest in desires that uh, challenge convention, these are things that are very much a part of the work of writers like Edith Wharton, and, and Henry James. Why do we accept them in James and Wharton and reject them in a figure like Nell Larson? Larson seems like a very important figure for you.
2: Yeah, she is. Um, that is, now and let me try to get very clear why. Um, it was a, a, a meticulous depiction and dissection of a world, a history of a world, um, a series of legacies and traditions that um, I had been made and maimed by, both.
1: (laughs) Well, right, because you describe her as a clinician of privilege. Yes. Which is very much what you're writing about in Negroland.
2: Very much so. Very much so. Uh, You know, a lot of the dramas about the the so-called tragic mulatto, or even the cultural mulatto, you know, ah... The desiccated black bourgeoisie. Um, They're simplistic and and they are sentimental. And I think basically she is not. She gets the cost.
1: I'm looking forward to the film that Rebecca Hall has made.
2: I'm very curious about this, yes.
1: Turns out that Rebecca Hall has a black grandfather.
2: Exactly, and, and you know, in that way, the story is always the same. the The opera singer mother who was always a little vague about <laughs> relatives, and and the story of whoever was, you know, not pure Nordic. Oh, I it keep changing. Well, I maybe uh, I think Indian. Oh, maybe Mediterranean. I mean, these are you know, when the, when the old tropes are still being used in human life, you have to find a way as a writer <laughs> to animate them.
1: But I wonder with Larson whether it's also that on some level you felt not just defensive, but protective of a world that had been disparaged by the black power movement, a a world that you'd grown up in and and you didn't hate it. You were critical of it, but you weren't about to throw it all away. And Nell Larson writes critically about that world, but it's not a brutal satire. No, it becomes rather
2: tragic, you know, a satiric tragedy, and certainly satiric. Um, You know, I can feel my mm, hackles rising a little defensively, as you're saying, I wanted in certain ways to protect it. But if it's my, but if it's my material, I guess, you know, I wanted to give it. Um, value. And also, um, someone asked me the other day at Vassar, I spoke to someone's class, and a young woman said, Well, did you feel growing up in the world you did that you had no culture? And I thought, Oh, that's one of the tropes. I, and that's an, that isn't very familiar one. You know, that the, I mean, that's a little bit, that's kind of E. Franklin Fraser. And this was a woman of color. You know, there is the Black bourgeoisie has totally you know, decimated you know, and desecrated any chance of having a culture of their own because they are so derivative.
1: Also because of the notion that became rather widespread in the 60s, that somehow Black culture only existed among poor people in the South or in the ghettos of the North. Exactly, exactly. That that was the wellspring of Black culture and that the Black middle class was somehow culturally desolate. Exactly.
2: Um, and And it has to be Revealed and exposed for its limits and for its pretensions, you know, and for its falsehoods. But it was a culture and parts of it produced. We were talking about these jazz musicians early on. Parts of it produced, including even politics. Miles Davis. Miles Davis. But political leaders as well, you know, really made (laughs) cultural products, cultural legacies that that mattered. Um, So I wanted to take all of that in. Yeah.
1: There's another reason I mentioned Nella Larson, and it's that she wrote about suicide. And yes. so did the playwrights Adrian Kennedy and Entozake Shange, who were literary heroes of yours. Yes, whom I love. And in Negroland, you talk about a period in your life in the late 70s when you began to cultivate a desire to kill yourself. And you even wrote to the Hemlock Society for instruction. <laughs> I did. Now, you don't say much about what was going on in your life at the time. Your memoir is very discreet. But what I found striking was this observation that black women had, in in your words, been denied the privilege of freely yielding to depression or flaunting neurosis as a mark of social and psychic complexity, unlike white women who could luxuriate in their vulnerability.
2: That's exactly right, yes.
1: Do you think that's still the case in our culture?
2: Uh, Less so, and I say this because so many students that I have who are people of color, often black but also Latinx, uh, Asian talk in uh, so much about
1: in this kind of therapeutic language, but also and,
2: about the needing the fa- the suffering and the not being able to name it. Kathy Park Hong talks about that too in Minor Feelings,
1: and Issa Rae's show Insecure is all about. that.
2: Yes, exactly. Find that you have to to break the seals on this. You have to acknowledge that this is not um, a betrayal of your people um, or a failure of your, of your sex and race. It's emerging. Now you see people talking about mental health, but this used to be not something that you were allowed to talk about, nor was it something that the mental health profession or industry was particularly interested in. Were there black psychiatrists in my world when I was growing up?
1: They're passing allusions in your book to feelings of loneliness and solitude. At some point you write that no one's striving to be my best friend anymore
2: <laughs> that was high school yeah.
1: you say the intensities of friendship suit you better than love affairs and that you intend to remain a single woman
2: and i do to also just talk about a kind of psychic exhaustion right.
1: from half feeling in every way i had to be
2: perfect in on every front
1: have you felt less of that over the years or is this still something you struggle with
2: i have felt less of it for the Very simple reasons that between um, a very good therapist and the right medication, I can attend to it the way one, you know, I'm not, let me not even come up with a physical comparison to civilize it, right? Um, I can attend to it. Um, It is in my temperament to some extent, for sure. Did it partly come from my father? Who knows? Yes, perhaps. So I will always be encountering it.
1: I'm guessing that you experienced no little bit of stress when you were working at the New York Times, though it's a pretty notorious place.
2: It can, it can be a murderous space. It, I would say the casualties um, among employees there are, are huge.
1: I think it's historically been much harder for employees of color as well.
2: Yes, and, and for women, no, no doubt. No doubt, you know the efforts required, and the memorization, and the impersonation, and the adaptation to you know fit into and succeed in these very in a series of very fixed social, ideological, um, cultural worlds. It it's taxing.
1: Your memoir is very impressive, not just for its sentences, not just for its thinking, but for its form. It's it's not a memoir exactly. I didn't want that. Yeah. It's not a linear autobiography. And the style is really the same style that you developed as a cultural critic.
2: Well, you know, I realized at a certain point when I started it, I was doing these little scenes that were kind of like short stories. And one reason I wrote the book was I did want to work with things like dialogue or, you know, monologue confession that I hadn't before. But I, I finally came to realize, wait a minute, it's like you're trying to pretend the part of you um that's a critic that is a key part of your identity doesn't exist. It has to be brought into um, this book in terms of the voice, in terms of the sensibility, in terms of how you how you assess all these performances. I mean, this world is so much about performances that you know one one and the roles that one is moving in and out of, taking off, putting on that, you know, of course, um I needed to be able to appreciate, depreciate, um, judge, and assess my own performances.
1: I think it's a book, by the way, that Kathleen Collins would have admired. And I (gasps) wondered, did you ever know her?
2: I did not know. I did a little reading. Her publisher, when the book came out, had a group of... Admiring writers read from sections of her stories. I wish I had. I didn't see Losing Ground till years later, which is also a very good movie. It's
1: very good.
2: Yeah, but she was a real talent, and I felt when I read that book, um, whatever happened to interracial love? I thought, oh, I shouldn't have, shouldn't have missed out on this.
1: Yeah, and that title story is tremendous. You know. Oh, it's wonderful. Yeah. Your book—it's poignant, it's searching, it's funny, it's also self-deprecating. You know, you write. I think it's too easy to recount unhappy memories. When you write about race, you bask in your own innocence, you revere your grief, you arrange your angers at -hmm. their most becoming angles. That passage appears twice in the (sighs) book. Why?
2: And it's certainly very deliberate. I was reminding myself, um, I suppose, which is a form of near self-censorship. But I thought if I put it out there, I, I won't be as enthralled to it. I felt it was a genuine reminder that it would be too easy to become the sentimental heroine of the race and gender drama. And I didn't want that. I really wanted some sense of critique to remain.
1: The tragic refugee from
2: Negroland. Yeah, exactly. I did not want that. And I also, I thought you think about this all the time. So use repetition and place it so that it signifies
1: Your book was published a year before the election of Donald Trump. The vision of your parents, you know, liberal integrationism, racial progress, was sorely tested by this presidency. Not that this came out of the blue. I mean, it it came out of America, but but, but violently.
2: But violently, vehemently, with a kind of gusto that one hadn't seen so publicly in a while.
1: One of the leading intellectual symptoms of this period, at least in what you might call black studies is afro-pessimism the idea that black people occupy this position of immutable eternal victimhood and all you can really do is cultivate your own garden and the rest of america is and will always remain off limits yeah it's kind of ontological
2: and all you can do is continue to analyze you know it historically yeah yeah you know here again afro-pessimism and there's not one counter Part to it. I don't know a Black person, and I would include myself, who does not have seizures of, periods of, you know, of, of absolute Afro-pessimism. With that kind of strong statement an artist friend wrote me a few weeks ago, you know, they hate us. It's hopeless. We don't belong here as they see it. They will do anything to get rid of us. And there is total truth in that.
1: So it, and it, there's certainly emotional truth to the mood as well.
2: Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yes, there's both emotional and factual truth here. Um, so, you know, you stay on the move, uh, meaning in how how active. How what do you do to keep yourself um, acting active, of a black person who's invested, you know, in in various forms of change. That's hard. Also, what do you as a writer, what do you choose to write
1: and why? You said in an email to me that you'd been thinking about the virtues of polemic because you haven't really expressed yourself in that mode in many years.
2: For a long time, exactly. And I did find that there were terrors, there were horrors going on, particularly, of course, tied to all the murders of black citizens that I didn't feel I had individual words for and that that were meaningful enough to deserve publishing. And that um, I thought, okay, that's history does that. Don't get all egotistical about it. But I I thought it also rattled me. I thought, no, there have to be some tools, you know, even if this is, this literal subject is not exactly what you pick, there have to be tools that use that horror in, in some other way. So that's why I've been thinking about it. And I should add, there have to be tools, comma, Margo, comma, that you, that you can use, yes.
1: Let's talk a little bit about the cultural situation in America today in this era of what's been called the awakening. You know, it's this paradoxical moment. Because uh, because on the one hand, you have these hierarchies and oppressive systems and various limitations on people's ability to be themselves. And they're being challenged, corrected, even overhauled. and At the same time, there are these new and sometimes restrictive lines being drawn about the ownership of culture, about who has the right to write or speak about the experience of others and about the moral responsibilities and even obligations of artists and writers. Now, you lived through a period with some similarities in the 60s and 70s, which you write about in Negroland. How does this period compare to that earlier moral and political transformation? What are your feelings about it?
2: you know you 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 implied though you didn't add that there is also more so even than in the earlier period the the mainstream is attempting in every way culturally to display their their awareness you know oh my god oh yeah
1: the new york times being a leading example
2: yes exactly you know that's a as long as the pieces are intelligent, wherever they appear, the insistence, the cultural presence and insistence on, you know, this is what we call American or diasporic culture, that is a good thing. But I I am partly an Afro-pessimist about this. There is, I remember so clearly, the backlash in the... Mid late seventies, when suddenly
1: there's this fatigue uh-oh. that sets in. A among- this
2: fatigue, this angry fatigue, and then the um, the list of resentments. Well, so and so said that no white person had the right to do such. Uh, you know, the the arguments, the debates, the um, the assignings of territories. All of those then rise up um, and become um, cannon fodder for. Uh, let's can't we go back to something more like what we used to be can't we just get the proportions more benevolent and benign so i'm i'm pessimistic about that in the meantime let as much be accomplished as possible i am never i'm you know i'm fine with with arguments about the immortal painting i'm virtually never on the side of nobody ipso facto can do this Show it to me, and then maybe I will say it can't be done.
1: Well, to go back to the argument that you made in ripping off black music, the question really is, what do you do with it?
2: It's what you do with it. And it is, yes, and it's also what, how aware you are, if you have privilege, of the circumstances that allowed you to do it and how you push, you know, and make, make more of a space for the people you've been learning from, um, who, in, who, quote, inspired or, you know, galvanized you.
1: Now, I imagine that you have some take on the whole idea of cancel culture because you wrote a book called On Michael Jackson, and he died not long after the book was published. And you've expressed some regret or ambivalence, not about writing the book, but about the way that you dealt with the subject of the accusations against Michael Jackson.
2: I felt that I was more evasive than I would have liked to be.
1: Was it the Leaving Neverland documentary that led you to feel? I
2: had felt all the way through that, you know, like many people, I just was a little too invested. And I knew he was deeply damaged. I knew much was wrong, but I was still a little too invested in not wanting that final step of what you just have to call
1: abuse. And I know I was.
2: And that's...
1: Which doesn't mean that we should stop listening to him.
2: I, which I made very clear when I was asked to write, um, you know, some pieces that then became an introduction to this. I said, no, of course we keep listening. This is what we have to keep engaging with. Exactly.
1: You've sometimes quoted that F. Scott Fitzgerald line about being able to hold two contradictory thoughts in our head as being the the uh, mark of intelligence and that's kind of what we have to bring to this subject
2: exactly and maybe it may require even more than two ideas but yes we do um and you know to suddenly do this about michael jackson when we've allowed so many other (laughs) sins to exist i don't you know i philip roth is a terrible misogynist i'm not a big fan i don't think I want to see every criticism made of the book, its quality, of that writer, his life, but I don't think it should have been snatched out of publication. No, there are better ways to discredit (laughs) and disavow.
1: You write that in the 60s the negro man was at the center of the culture's race obsessions the negro woman on the shabby fringes my (laughs) sense though is that that's one way in which things really have changed
2: it is it's amazing yeah um would not have thought i can't say i wouldn't have thought it would happen but who knew when it would and there's so much variety now you know there's so many options um you know you can be a kind of earth mother you can be a nasty little rebellious freak you can be transgender you can you know you can change your look not your hopefully not your principles <laughs> you can play around you know all the aesthetics that were closed off now black people don't do this kind of music or they don't do that or this dance that's gone whatever you want to do and i love that
1: i love that. that's quite liberating yeah now when i was typing out a passage on my computer the word black kept getting automatically capitalized.
2: Capitalized, I know. I don't know what to do with that. The official thing now is that we capitalize black and white, right?
1: A lot of capitalization. A lot of capitalization, I don't know what to do.
2: I don't capitalize either in my emails (laughs) to people, right? But, you know, there was also that period when instead of saying black, even if you capitalized it, it was preferred that you say African-American. So, sure. you know.
1: And you said that you only reserved African-American for official occasions.
2: I did say yeah. that. That's right. But then black came back. Um, so I don't know. Is that, You know, if, if, if you or I were Stanley Crouch, we would launch some major <laughs> attack on this. And, you know, that's that's not where my... Passions lie, but these these things matter, you know, when the next piece I write, uh, the next piece you write, I mean, is, is this what's going to be demand? There's something, it, it looks clumsy to me, both of them right now on the page.
1: It oddly looks clumsy and yet for some reason Negro capitalized, which your parents took pride in, doesn't look odd.
2: That's because it has so many, it, you know, it has so many decades behind it.
1: Yeah. It's just time.
2: It's got, yeah, it really is time. It's history, it's tradition,
1: it's its legacy. So maybe we have to be patient for capitalized black to acquire that meaning.
2: We have to be patient. I could only get away with using Negroland in a title because I could track a genuine um, etymological and cultural and political history. So we got away.
1: Margot, a mutual friend of ours, the critic and novelist Daryl Pinkney, told me that you've just finished a new book. I have. What is it about?
2: Well, it's, um, it's quite theatrical, actually. It's, a, it's about um, overlapping, interchanges between what one thinks of as criticism and what one thinks of as memoir. And the intimacies and distances that each invites um, or imposes. It's called reconstructing a nervous system. So it covers, it covers a lot of waterfronts. And, and thank you for mentioning um, ages ago that it wasn't a traditional structure, um, Negroland, because I didn't want it to be, though there is some. Um, this is less traditional. This is more untraditional still.
1: Yeah, Margot, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for joining me.
2: Oh, it's been a great, great, great pleasure. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to Margot Jefferson on Myself with Others, a podcast by Adam Schatz. Myself with Others is produced by Richard Sears. This edition of Myself with Others is co-presented with the London Review of Books. Thank you to ECM Records, Fresh Sound Records and Carl Wilson for additional music on this episode. All other music in this conversation is composed and performed by Richard Sears. Thank you for listening and please subscribe.